It's been a mad few weeks in the world of AI. Elon Musk recently launched his uncensored Grok large language model. Meanwhile, over at OpenAI, Sam Altman launched a whole bunch of different features at the OpenAI Dev Day. So to help me understand these changes and what they mean for the world, this week I am speaking with Alex Kerr. Alex is the founder and chairman at PAI. He is a fellow at a whole bunch of different venture capital firms. He's a former editor at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI, and he's a content creator. So without further delay, this is The Complete Tech Heads. I am Tom Edwards, and this week I bring you Alex Kerr. Complete Tech Heads. Um, Alex, thanks so much for jumping on. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Tom? Yes, very well, thank you. Um, So lots of stuff that I want to ask you about. Um, in the wonderful world of AI. But uh, first up, I would love to get a bit of an intro to you, your background, your interests, and kind of where you where you come at this industry from. Yeah, so um, happy to chat a bit about my background. So I started um, getting interested in AI in high school. Um, so initially did some research at the Computational Cognitive Sciences Lab at MIT under Josh Tenenbaum. I'm really interested in understanding um, intelligence uh, more widely through um, whether that's understanding machines more or developing these systems that can mirror uh, human intelligence. Um, and I think it's one of the key, key questions to increasing like human productivity and thriving. Um, and yeah, got into AI research and decided that the shipping rate of um, academia is kind of slow where you're not getting much user feedback, um, but it, it is very cutting edge and interesting work, but just not personally for me. So got in more into um, venture capital and startups. Um, so worked at uh, Neurable, which is a series B brain computer interface startup uh, for around a year um, in machine learning. Um, and also worked at uh, several funds doing uh, machine intelligence investing. And um, now, I, I mean, everyone's picking up on ChatGPT, which is super exciting. So um, trying to publish a lot more content, um, a lot of my personal takes on Twitter and just cool projects, um, just hacking together with uh, the, the new API. So. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, I follow you on Twitter. That's, that's, uh, how I kind of came across you. I saw your, um, NBA commentator, uh, video that you put out. It seemed like it did pretty well. Um, how did you do that? Yeah, I think, um, it is pretty straightforward, honestly. Um, there's a bunch of templates and cookbooks on, um, open AI's website where you can just clone the repo and modify it a bit. So what I did is um, they had a, a video to um, text to um, voiceover pipeline already set up. So okay. I just used that, modified the prompt to talk in the style of Mike Breen. And also I had to uh, kind of tinker with the sampling rate a little because I was hitting their very strict daily rate limit. Um, and so, so I pass in a video frame essentially every five seconds um, and then just hack that together and made a cool clip. And I guess it went pretty viral. So it's, so it's just looking at one frame every five seconds. So it's not actually watching the video. It's just yeah. very yeah. Uh, intermittent yeah. frames. Exactly, exactly. That's amazing because it's really convincing. Like it's amazing that it's, it's able to do that without seeing anything in for those, you know, for that space of time in between. Yeah, I think it's super amazing that it's understanding what's actually going on in the video. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's because, like, I mean, I don't know if you know what frames it saw, but like, what if it hadn't seen the ball go in the net? Yeah. So I someone actually asked this question in the comments, which is, um, what if it missed that frame? And my guess is. Um, since GPT, this is still GPT vision, right? So GPT is a large language model. Um, I suspect that there may be data leakage in um, that already understands that this is a major game right. and it's been trained yeah. on the sort of data of, oh, Damian Lillard uh, shot this through hand, kind of 
beat the Thunder um, back in 2019 right. and picked up that info elsewhere and then incorporated it into the voiceover. So that's also a potential. Um, okay. Yeah. Area, so what you need um, is a is a fake game to see whether it. Yes. Whether it's yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think something to point out is I did try to um, have it classify like what player is doing what thing. Um, as in like Damian Lillard is shooting the three on the last possession and um, like Paul George is the uh, defender, but it couldn't like, I said explicitly, please like classify the players and it just can't do it. So I have to t- give it the context of um, Dame Lillard is handling the ball and Paul George is guarding him. So, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. It's, it's not totally magic. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, it's still pretty good, isn't it? It's yeah, amazing yeah. the things understood. We... What's going on? So yeah, yeah, um, it's amazing the things that we nitpick about AI systems now. You know, we're so used to them being so good. It's like, oh, what it couldn't it couldn't do that one thing? Like yeah. as soon as there's something that it can't do that you could do, you sort of think that it's not very good anymore. But it's like yeah. we forget how far we've come in the last like year. Yeah. Well. Well. Look, I think there's a lot of cool, interesting sports applications. Uh, I got some comments saying, can this be applied to like sports scouting where you're sort of in the future able to identify which players which um, and how many um, possessions they have, how many assists they have, how many field goals they have across various sports and Mm -hmm. sort of um, identify which are the underrated players um, and kind of track analytics more like in a more automated way in a more granular way so i think that that's like a super interesting application that this yeah. demo can't do currently in real time but will be done in real time probably in the next like three to five years yeah um, yeah yeah and there's all there's so many analytics in sports already right i mean i don't really follow american sports but certainly in um soccer football as we call it um right. There's like an insane amount of analytics already. Like there's so much data. I'm sure people must be doing this already, building all sorts of crazy stuff with all of the vast amounts of data that they're already pulling from sports teams. Right, right. I I think one thing to note is it is very expensive to process the data at the moment. And I think this is why the the demo only works well on short clips. Right, yeah. Um, This is a 30 second clip. And um, I, I ran it around like five to 10 times. I don't remember the exact number when I was testing it, but it costed me around 50 cents. But if um, I, I know some folks were thinking about like security camera footage where you can identify like anomalies. And right. um, if you don't need like a human looking over the security footage, what if you can just get alerted? Um, I think that application is still very difficult because um, that's not a 30 second footage. That's a 24 hour footage. Yeah. And that, that will be like thousands of dollars, right. To run each day, which is yeah. well, hundreds and thousands a month. Um, yeah. That's quite, it's quite a scary thought though, isn't it? When, yeah. when that, when all, every security camera throughout, like, I mean, London's got <laughs> an insane number of security cameras, right? Like yeah, yeah. A, a hive mind knowing everything you're doing and, and presumably thinking from the expression on your face. Yeah. kind of a, <laughs> they trap that level of, yeah yeah there's definitely a dystopia movie in there somewhere isn't there yeah um so look i wanted to talk to you about grok um i know that uh you've got more knowledge about um gpt gpt4 gpt turbo open ai than than you have of, of grok but what are your initial impressions of what you've seen of grok so far yeah, I think um, it is really impressive how the um, the XAI team were able to put this together um, this quickly, especially it's, it's like a really small team. And um, one, several interesting things I noticed about the model is it is less lobotomized as in it is yeah. less censored, which is more fun. And um, so, so you can explore, I guess, um, a wider range of behavior and kind of the fringe behaviors of the model um, more so than GPT. So I think that's very useful. Um, and I think it it is more appealing to the users from like an agent or assistant perspective, because um, I think when humans 
um, or a lot of my friends are interacting with like GPT, sometimes it gives a very bland response where it sounds, people say it sounds very GPT generated, where it's very formal. It has this formal tone. It's uh, some, somewhat rambly and somewhat re- it repeats itself sometimes. Whereas I think the Grok angle is, since it has more of a personality, um, it's just better, like the users love it better. So I, I think that that's, that's a cool aspect. And um, I, I tweeted about this also, which is the um, RLHF potential of Grok, where mm. since you have this uh, massive live stream of data basically coming in every day, you know, 500 million, around 500 million tweets um, of all formats. So it could be like photos, videos, and just text. And it'll be interesting to see how they can use this proprietary data because only Twitter has it and only Elon has it, which means only the XAI team has it and nobody else in the world has it. So they, they're like, uh, they're preventing anti-scraping at the moment and how they're able to kind of use this data stream to better refine Grok. Um, yeah. I think that's something I'm watching out for. I noticed one of the first things Elon did when he took over Twitter, as it was then, was get a lot more serious about their data, right? Like he, yep. he made API access a lot more expensive straight away. And I think yep. that was something that, you know, I'm a, I'm a marketer, right? Like a, a lot of the marketing analytics tools that we use were all built on the Twitter API because it was so open. Um, but I think they perhaps didn't realize the value of what they had. And I think Elon definitely does, right? And, and right. we're starting to see that now. Um, you mentioned um, RLHF. Uh, I am aware of, of what it is, but for listeners who may not be, could you give a, a brief kind of um, like 101 on, on what it is and why it's important? Yeah, so um, RLHF stands for Reinforcement Learning from Human Feedback. Um, and it's, I think... The, simp- uh, the simplest way to explain it is the thumbs up or thumbs down feature on uh, ChatGPT. So when uh, it generates a response, when you're interacting with um, ChatGPT or any chatbot, there's like a thumbs up or thumbs down feature where you vote on the quality of the response. So instead of just training the model on being the next best word or sequence prediction, which is what these large language models or transformers are doing, you're um, post the training process. Um, you're sort of like fine tuning the model on um, human feedback. And you're, you're, you're telling the model how, um, what types of behaviors are users looking for, um, which may actually differ from its original training data. And in this process, it makes the model just better and more useful to humans who are using using it yeah and so this is something that open ai use for yes. their models right um how and i know that you don't have you know insider access to the way grok's built but how do you see the potential of x being used to improve uh rlhf on, on grok in a way that perhaps OpenAI might not be able to do. Yeah, I, I think um, there there's several interesting ways where um, since you have 500 million data, a, a data set of 500 million each day, um, I was hypothesizing um, and Elon said true actually to this tweet and he did a laughing really? emoji. I yeah, I don't know if this is like, He's agreeing with me where he thinks it's a joke. I'm, I don't really understand, but I, I said something along the lines of like, you can use community notes or um, some ratio of like likes and um, bookmarks or retweets or comments as like an indicator for how well the, um, like to kind of use that as the RLHF data. So if you think the OpenAI case, it's a direct thumbs up or thumbs down, but for Twitter, instead of thumbs up or thumbs down, it's it's actually a much richer data source. And then you can sort of use that to fine tune the model, which would be cool. I think maybe that's how they're doing it, if you said true. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Um, So like the, the, the way I've kind of understood 
GPT, GPT-4, whatever, is that it was a model that was trained and then you can then access that by messaging it and then you then then it gives you a response based on the kind of intelligence that it's built up. Is there any possibility that a model could be being actively trained in real time by something like, you know, Twitter's ongoing data set? Is that like technically feasible? I, I think so, but it would be very, very expensive and very, very hard um, okay. is the consensus I got in the replies to my post where, um, yeah, it's just too expensive and like, it's just like not financially feasible, I think. Right. Okay. So they would have to like sample or filter the data maybe in some way to just like maybe pick out the most um, salient tweets that are useful. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't think it's possible in real time to continuously train a machine learning model. So how, how people right now are doing modeling in industry and like production is essentially um, if the data set drifts, which is a common behavior of like, say consumers behave one way when they interact with their ML model, they, they, they sort of like buy certain clothing, for example, this season and next season, it's suddenly winter. So they're buying like um, warmer clothes. Um, the model's predictions are no longer accurate. So what they do right. is every month they would like retrain the model and redeploy the model um, accordingly to how the data drifts and how the distribution shifts over time. So I think that sort of like batch training would be possible, but it's still a, like a huge data set. And I don't, I, I think um, people made the fair point in the comments that there is a lot of noise in X where there there are still a lot of bots. There are still a lot of people just shit posting and posting random stuff that may not be helpful um, for like a semi, like a quasi RLHF process. So um, yeah, they'll have to do some like filtering or denoising yeah. first. You could definitely get, if you wanted to extract humor, which seems to be like something Elon Musk is interested in, yeah if you just filter for tweets that have got like you know 150 likes or more you would definitely get you would definitely extract some real funny <laughs> like tweets from that right or posts whatever they're called now um you'd definitely be able to like triangulate over humor in like the the funniest possible way i think like it is it is a kind of humor factory in many ways x i think yeah, I think the internet rewards people for being funny. Yeah. And there's yeah. a lot of funny things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, X definitely does anyway. Like yeah, Instagram yeah. rewards people for being good looking, right? right Which is why right. the only funny stuff you ever see on Instagram is a screenshot of a of a tweet. Tweet, right? yeah, yeah. Right, that's right. Um, but X definitely does. Twitter always, Twitter's always been hilarious. It's always been a, a, a kind of cesspit as well in many ways. But it's like, I, I often kind of think that's, that's humanity, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like it, you, you've, you've got to take the rough with the smooth, like, you know, humanity's not uh, perfect. Like the, what's it, the, the Solzhenitsyn quote, the line, line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man, you know, we've all got, we've all got that darkness in us somewhere as well, I think. So it's like, if you want a true representation of humanity, I think that's, you know, you start censoring and, and, and you lose it. It's like the, yeah. you know, uh, the lobotomized effect that you were talking about with with GPT, it does feel like that's been creeping in. Do you think that they've been doing a lot of work to moderate the output at OpenAI? Yes, I, de I definitely think they have. They've put some sort of filter on it um, for safety and alignment reasons. I don't know what that means. Um, I, I'm not like um, that informed in AI safety or AI alignment research, but it seems. Mm that they're protecting against like malicious outcomes. Like I think one of the worst outcomes for X as a platform or just for content and social media in general is like just the proliferation of um, bots. And that are basically that passes like capture tests that passes mm -hmm. these like verification tests to being human and then sort of just like expanding the platform. And it just becomes even more of a cesspool of bots um, and deep fakes, right? On Instagram's yeah. case, so I, I think that case would be very bad. And um, yeah, that, that's probably like the worst case scenario. Yeah. Or 
a lot of it must be is it like is it a real difficult technical challenge to would i mean you know using the knowledge that you have of, of machine learning to moderate the output of a large language model in that way because i guess it's not like just simple you know decision trees of you know like outputs right like they can't just look for particular words and then give a stock response against them i wouldn't have thought like presumably you've got to do some work to integrate the filter into the large language model response or if i got that completely wrong yeah i i think so i think there's this interesting dichotomy of like people with generative ai it's almost this like um, GAN model where it's like the Jan of, uh, generative adversarial network where on one end you have the generator on the other end. So this is a particular type of model. The other end you have like a discriminator and then they kind of improve in tandem where the generator is trying to generate more and more deceiving content, but the discriminator is trained more and more to discriminate what's actually good versus bad. Um, so I think... It's at the end of the day, it might be just like machine learning models trying to like see which, whether you can fake, fake, yeah. um, fake the discriminator or not. <laughs> the discriminator just trying to like filter everybody out. Um, yeah. 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 It's a, it's a mad world that we're kind of walking into, right? Where there's yeah. so much, so much of this is going to be going on under the hood and people just have no idea about all of the kind of um technology that's going into the, the things that they're reading it does kind of um freak you out a bit when you think about it like that um so on just to finish up on grok quickly so like we, we, we've been speaking about all of the data that that they've got at x and how useful that could potentially be how is how and why if at all is that different from all of the data that google have got that facebook have got that Microsoft have got, like they're all sitting on vast amounts of data, right? Like, is there any advantage there to having Twitter as opposed to Gmail or whatever? Yeah, I, I think they're, all the data sets are really different. For example, Google probably has a huge data set on this, everybody's search behavior. So that's like intent. Um, like, what are you trying to like answer? Like, um, what kind of products are you trying to buy on Amazon's case, for example? It's, um, I think it ties into like the functionality of the, plat uh, the, the app or platform itself. On Gmail, it's very communicate, like professional communication where you're saying like, oh, let's set up a time to do this or like, can you do this by then? So I think there's this professional tonality to it, even, even um, also on LinkedIn as well. Um, whereas on Twitter, it's, I think there's a lot more like stream of consciousness and people saying what they want and people saying their thoughts and their interesting takes. So I think the data tends to be less like sterile and more like opinionated. I think mm -hmm. there's more like polarity or diversity to the data, which could, could be interesting compared to something that is like, you're not posting what you would post on Twitter on LinkedIn. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A LinkedIn large language model would be like dull. <laughs> It would probably make some very cringe, um, like motivational. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it might be even worse than like GPT. So I, I mean, that's why they're not like training anything. Yeah, man, I don't want. I don't want to see that large language model. Jesus. Um, cool. All right. So look, um, OpenAI Dev Day. I know we're, we're we're slightly behind it now, but everybody's had a chance to kind of really dig into the stuff that they announced. Um, there's lots there. What were you most excited about? Um, yeah, so I, I actually had this list of features that I think are super underrated and um, that is not GPTs. Like every, obviously the first thing you think of is like the GPT store, right? Yeah. Where um, a lot of people are saying, oh, this is like the new app store. Like this is the new Shopify. Like if you are, one of the first developer where you become a top developer on the store you can capitalize on the revenue sharing. Um, yeah, I, I think that might be true, but it's still, I think I still need to see whether, how, how much of the value capture is there for your average developer or 
does OpenAI as like a platform capture most of the value? Yeah. Um, so that's to be determined um, on yeah. whether it is the next app store. Um, but I, I, kind I of struggle to see it intuitively. I kind of feel like I, I don't know. I, it doesn't feel to me like it has as much like diversity as like the app store did. It felt like a whole new world with the app store and apps and like yeah. there's so many things you can do where you can imagine the real world applications. I kind of feel like, well, you know, the, the outputs from GPTs, they're all kind of, you know, they're just, they're just like <laughs> someone talking to you in a different accent, you know, or with a di- some different right. knowledge. Right, right. right. It doesn't feel like it has that wild diversity that the early days of the app store did to me, but maybe yeah. I'm just, naive i don't know yeah folks are saying it's glorified like pre-prompting or glorified custom instructions where um you sort of inject this personality kind of personality to gpt but at at the end of the day it's not like a fundamentally innovative feature which i i think i agree with um but going back to your earlier question there are like many things that happened at dev day that i think sam sort of like breezed over what he said like one sentence about but are very interesting from like a developer perspective um one is uh multiple function calling so that's calling many actions with a single uh tool or prompt um yeah calling many actions or tools from a single prompt um another is json mode so what a lot of people are struggling with is with large language model outputs, um, people want it in a consistent format, especially if you're passing it into some other application where you're doing something with the output. Mm. But as you know, the, these models are like uh, probabilistic. It's not deterministic um, generation each time. So there's variety in it. Mm. Um, and they introduced JSON mode to kind of give you structured JSON each time instead of sometimes saying like, here's the JSON for you and then giving the JSON. It's like, I don't want, here's the JSON for you. That's like, that's annoying for my like downstream system to parse, right? So I'm glad they're like enforcing more of a structured and predictable format. And um, they're also giving, um, yeah, a a super interesting development is like, um, like RAG, retrieval augmented um, generation, which is like basically grounding the output on certain documents or databases. So to Mm. prevent hallucination. So if you, if you look on the platform right now with GPT or with uh, the assistant API, you can like attach files. So Mm. the hope is the model will use the information in the source file you give instead of coming up with something it just thinks is right. Right. Um, yeah. So there's a lot more certainty. So I, I think those are super uh, interesting features. And obviously, like the vision thing with the basketball demo, it's like available to everybody now, like uh, advanced data um, analytics or code interpreter. Um, so yeah, that, that that suite of tools are available. Yeah. So because the, the documents um, upload that you can do now, so we're, we're you know, we're building uh product at the moment and we've just been literally taking whole documents and dropping them all into the prompt right into like pre-prompting um and like reworking them a bit often you know but that's just a massive shortcut right but i I imagine lots of people have probably been doing similar previously um so in lane chain yeah people are doing it in lane chain and it feels like they're kind of moving towards where their audience is, right? They're, they're presumably yeah. looking at what people are building and trying to make that quicker and easier. But it seems like in the process, uh, they're cutting the legs off of lots of um, startups, right? Like, Yeah, there, there were a lot of memes, actually, when yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure you saw them. <laughs> During that day, people are just saying, like, all these YC rappers are dead, like, goodbye. And then it's like, oh, look at Sam's face when he, like, killed all, like, hundreds of thousands of startups. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, (laughs) Captain, pretty cool, huh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So just just briefly, for people who don't know, just the, 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 this idea of GPT rapper 
which yeah. has been kicking around. Just explain just briefly what, what we mean when we say a GPT wrapper. Sure, yeah. So I, I think what GPT wrapper generally means is that um, OpenAI has an API, which is essentially what an API is, is a bunch of functions you can call to interact with a large language model and its functionalities um, at, uh, from if you're building an application on top of it. And what a GPT wrapper does is it's um, a front end or some application, user-facing application that does not have as much engineering complexity. It's not, I guess, like technologically innovative. It's more so just using the OpenAI existing functions and the API in a very interesting and intuitive way for the users. Mm. Um, it's, it's funny that this, because it's kind of become like a derogatory term, right? A GPT yep. wrapper. Like, yeah. I think the implication is that you're not really adding value on top of what chat GPT can already do. Yeah. But like, it's, you didn't see, like there were lots of, um, you know, like in the, in the dawn of social media, there were lots of tools that were built on top of the Twitter API, Facebook API, whatever, that, yeah. um, that again, weren't hugely technically complex, right? They were just sort of pulling data and putting it into pie charts or whatever. Um, and you, you kind of didn't have that same, um, like negative take that seems to be kicking around for GPT wrappers. I, I suspect maybe it's because you can do it in plain language. So it's like before it was a, it was, you know, developers were able to be the the gatekeepers kind of, whereas now anybody can do it. It kind of feels like more of a, more of a effective neg. Yeah, I, I think, um, I agree with that point where there is like less engineering work or complexity required, which results in less of a moat. Because before technology companies, a lot of them are essentially AWS wrappers, right? Like you yeah, have right. these yeah. AWS instances and S3 and you're like, you, you set up your infrastructure as like a B2B SaaS company on top of these things. But no one's calling you like an AWS wrapper because there is still like a lot of non-trivial work on the back end, on the front end of um, building the application itself. Whereas I think OpenAI is taking a lot of the engineering work away, which makes these businesses less defensible. Um, and that's what people, that, that's why people have this general like negative sentiment yeah. <laughs> towards yeah. the wrappers. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. So do, do you think all GPT wrappers should all be worried? Are there any GPT wrappers that you've seen that you think actually there is a business there, they are adding value and that there is some kind of um, future? Or do you think that it's all just been kind of killed off? Yeah, I, I think um, that there is a lot with a great future um, because not all like GPT wrappers are created equal. Um, like for example, um, there are GPT wrappers kind of consolidating workflows that are very, um, that involves like multiple prompts or a chain of prompts before you get the thing you want. And if you can consolidate that in sort of like a visual UI or something that's more intuitive than prompting, because people are lazy, they don't want to prompt, they don't even want to sign up for like a GPT account. There is that like opportunity for you to like serve the market really well for that one specific use case. But I think if you're a generic like PDF chat, um, you know, the most generic cases, like that's the hello world of GPT wrappers, which is a uh, chat with PDF. Um, I, I think if you're the generic wrapper, uh, that might be a scary, I think right now might be a scary time for you. But I think there are PDF chat AIs that would do really well. Um, if they already have sort of the existing brand, they have um, like a lot of customers and um, they're serving their use case very specifically. Um, I, I, I think the overall, uh, my overall take on this is like, if you serve one vertical, like one segment um, really well and you don't build with everybody in mind, you're going like very niche and very deep and you're building orthogonal to like what OpenAI would incorporate as a feature in the, um, in the future. I think it is a sustainable business, but I, I, I think it's not venture backable. It's not like a billion out, dollar outcome. 
And I wrote a piece on Jasper AI and how they had to like fire everybody and because they raised wow, a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, that was the I, one you know, I was thinking of. That's yeah. like the the archetype of um, companies that have been that have been killed by by the recent Dev Day, right? Yeah, I yeah I I think it's more important now than ever to focus on marketing um, and your brand essentially if you were operating a GPT wrapper because the technology is essentially all handled by OpenAI. It's commoditized. The only engineering work you're doing is building like a front end. So mm-hmm. what differentiates you at the end of the day is like how you reach your users, your distribution strategy, um, and, and how you kind of build habits of the users that keep coming back to your app versus someone else's because yeah. everybody has access to the same technology now. And yeah. you, you, that's not the competitive edge. You mentioned trying to be orthogonal to what OpenAI is going to develop in the future. That sounds like a very difficult task, right? Like how, how would you think about pursuing that as a strategy? Yeah, I, I think, um, don't build things that OpenAI might incorporate as features. For example, PDF to chat is a very wide use case. It's a very common use case, which is file uploads in general, file compression. Um, OpenAI may add that to their platform, but say you're in a really antiquated and traditional industry like agriculture, and you have this data set as a business you've been collecting over two decades and it's a very high quality data set you clean it very well and then you fine-tune um gpt4 on that model i think that would be a super powerful value add to your existing business or if you were selling some prediction or inference service for say farmers or like agriculture um that that is a compelling use case that OpenAI as like a platform would not go under because it's so specialized. And if you look at OpenAI's like go-to-market strategy, it's they're not like targeting specific populations to send them paid ads. So I think there's still a lot of opportunities in sort of the the, the specific like vertical use cases. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean they don't they don't need to do they? Yes. Yeah. Um, captivated the the world like they could they could they could own any industry they want if they wanted to but i uh i guess they've, they've got better things to do right than uh than, than spend much time marketing so in terms of the future of ai in terms of the things that it's going to be able to do like do you, how do you think about job displacement? Do you think every white collar worker now should be worried about the job? Yeah, I, I think it's really funny how it's not the physical manual labor that gets replaced first, to your point, yeah. because we're still so far off from robotics. Um, and it's actually like the more intellectual, like computer jobs that are getting um, yeah. displaced first. I, I I think, yeah, ev- like even engineers, right? Even like software engineers are under a lot of pressure um, because of things like Code Interpreter and these AI systems that can be essentially like a pretty good entry-level engineer. And that means you don't need as many of them on the market. Um, so I, I think people will experience displacement and you do need... Um, I think the skill is less technical now and it's more like the central skill we're looking at is like twofold. One is how good you are at writing or communication. I think that's always important um, because essentially for to use any AI system, you're using like natural language um, to tell, tell it what you want. But if you can't articulate what you want as a result of the system, or how to like chat with ChatGPT, or how to prompt. Um, it's going to be very hard for you. So I think communication and just good writing is very important in the next few. Yeah, decades. it's interesting. Yeah, that, because that's the main thing it does, right? But it's it's still it is still important. I, I, like I often find that like 
the when you get bad responses or, or responses from a prompt that you that you you know that you don't want or that it's it's wrong somehow it's because you're not doing a good enough job of articulating all of the different criteria all of the different priors that you have in your head that you're not kind of consciously aware of right so if if you're an expert in an industry there's lots of background knowledge and context that you just know intuitively that ChatGPT doesn't, right? And so listing out all of those is um, is part of the job. Articulating yourself is like the the thing that you've got to get good at, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that's one thing, just like, so English majors might be making a comeback. Or, <laughs> so, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> I love the implication that they're, they're, they're somehow dead currently. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, that's what a lot of people are saying. But um, yeah, I think good writers are always underrated. Um, and the other thing is just how like um, strong of a personal brand you have or how strong you, how I guess like how, in, how you interface with the market will be very important as an individual like em, employee because engineering or certain skills like copywriting is becoming more and more commoditized um, through uh, like GPT and these large language models where um, it used to take a lot more skill to write a good copy or write a good piece of code. But right now, if you're a beginner programmer or beginner copywriter, you can learn much faster using um, like these large language models where you don't even need to learn the skill. It can just like use it to generate stuff if you know what you want and generate very good pieces of code and very good pieces of writing um, if you give it a very good specific prompt. Um, and I think that is making people who are, I guess, like more senior engineers or more senior writers um, positions like less defensible. And I, I would, I'm, I'm even starting to worry like as an engineer of like, um, how much like leak coding, like how much just coding do you actually need to learn when in an age of when these large language models can just look at like parameters and fill in your functions and can just do these basic tasks for you. So I think people should think more in the framework of like, how do you become like an architect or like just like higher levels of abstraction instead yeah. of um, yeah, like yeah. how do you design software systems instead of like how do I write this function um, or how does this function work? Um, yeah 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 i guess i uh, i think your um your mic is uh scratching on your um jacket oh sorry a bit. yeah, yeah. No um yeah it's it's it, it's it's interesting like i guess eventually we're just going to get to a stage where it's like ideas is everything right you have the idea and then it can just do it for you you know like there, there are, there'll be agents that can that can execute any of your ideas and you just go up levels of abstraction every time right yeah, I, I, I think uh, we are entering and I was going to actually tweet about this later, maybe like this week, but I think we are entering like an age where good taste and good aesthetics um, are going to be valued more and more like good ideas, as you said, and good judgment yeah. um, rather than just the purely technical skills. Um, yeah, 100%. When the large language model handles all the technical aspects. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, decision making, right? Like it, the the, the, the decision making will probably be the last vestige of kind of human authority, right? It's the last thing that that will that will hand over. We'll be we'll be holding on to making the final decisions on things for far longer than we hold on to the technical implementation, right? Because we want to feel like we're in control until eventually right. we'll probably let the AI well. Well, I think self-driving cars are already making that decision. They're not like <laughs> checking every time they want to turn. They're just turning, at least at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know if you have any views on open source AI or open open weights AI. I've heard it called. I had a guy called uh, Joseph Jackson. I don't know if you know him from OSS Capital. Um, commercial open source is, is his thing. Um, and he's very much a kind of evangelist for you know, the only moat is, is your rate of innovation. Um, it's it's all about 
innovating quickly and you know we shouldn't be trying to protect any of this stuff just move faster and um and so he, he's of the belief that that you know open source is going to be the way forward and that it shouldn't be kind of in these silos have you interacted much i mean i i would assume you have interacted quite a lot with the open source ai community but i'm not sure um is it something that you've got any strong views on particularly in the context of you know all of the legislation that's starting to kick off yeah i i i think it is very good that players like facebook are open sourcing models like uh Llama too, and then you also have Mistral, um, the startup in France. Um, you can also fine tune on those models. I think you're able to understand what's going on in the hood. And if you don't want to go with like the chat GPT or sorry, the open AI API, um, it's a great way as a developer to explore these different options and avenues and have these serve as an alternative for open AI because you don't want to rely on on like a single incumbent that sounds like a monopoly right yeah. which is not good it's not good for innovation um so yeah I'm, I'm definitely for open source um but it is a lot more work to set up like uh, um these these open source models on like individual machines and if you're fine-tuning on them it is a lot of work compared to something like just using the api straight out of the box yeah. um like the NBA thing, if you were to recreate that in open source, I think it might be harder. Um, yeah. 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 It's um, like, because Elon Musk obviously set up OpenAI to be open. I wonder whether Grok is going to be open because it doesn't seem to be at the moment. You would think that that would be one of his main motivations. Yeah. I was just saying, it's, it, you know, Elon Musk set up OpenAI to be open source. Right. And now it isn't. Um, I wonder whether Grok will ever go open source because it doesn't seem to be at the moment. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to. I, I, I mean, I don't know what his plan is, honestly. So, um, but yeah, it, it, it does seem it's like a private beta at the moment. Yeah. They haven't released any of the weights or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so the, the, uh, Joseph uh, came on was, was uh, says that he doesn't refer to it as open source. He calls it open weights because mm. there's not really any source code to speak of. Um, so that's that's how they refer to it. They don't call it open okay, source. Cool. Um, so look, before we wrap, uh, I do. There's one last thing I want to um, ask you about, which is BCIs, brain computer interfaces. It's a subject that I've been interested in for a while. So what was the work that you were doing in the BCI space? Yeah, so I was at Neurable from, um, like, basically during the pandemic from May of 2020 um, for around, like, eight, ten months and um, was working as machine learning uh, capacity there. And um, what, what it's doing is uh, we're building these headphones that takes... Um, these electric signals around your ear. So there, there are these um, different lobes in your brain and there's like the temporal lobe, which is closer to your um, ear and um, reading kind of electric signals um, base, which are your brain activity and um, using extensive machine learning pipeline to clean up the data, to filter the data and to predict um, how focused you are um, at any given time, whether you should take a break, whether a certain type of music you're listening to is per, um, good for productivity. And sort of that this is a very useful application for like wearable AI. So you can think of it almost as like a Fitbit, but for your brain. Um, wow. whereas, whereas Fitbit is for like your health generally, and then there's the aura ring. So I think it's all sort of in the same sphere. And um, I also wrote like a pretty viral tweet earlier this summer on like um, Apple actually filed this patent on AirPods. And I think they're also doing a similar play where they're putting electrodes where they're thinking, I think it's like an active research area. I don't know the status because I, I don't have information on like the Apple research team, but 
it, it seems that they're adding some sort of sensors to AirPods that can also read your brain activity. So hopefully giving you better like health analytics and feedback, um, like in a pretty good fine grained level. And so this is, so this is all outside the skull, obviously. Yes. yes. So, cause you have two different types of BCIs, right? Yes. There are some that, that actually. Right. Invasive and non-invasive. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so do, do you lose, uh, fidelity staying outside the skull? Like is the, is the quality of the data better if you're able to actually make contact? Yes. I think the data quality is definitely a lot worse outside the skull, which makes a very hard machine learning problem yeah. of like, yeah. sometimes I think when I was doing the work, I even wonder like, is there even any signal to be read because it is so noisy? Like, so I think it is a very challenging engineering task, but at the end we were able to read like some signal. So um, I think it's, it's just the, it's sort of just the robustness of your pipeline and like whether you can solve the engineering problem and, and it's like definitely an active research area. And I don't think anyone's has done it really well um, just yet, like as in like commercialized a product that really yeah. st stood out like the iPhone or, yeah. yeah. You ha do you think it's quite far away, like a real kind of, you know, consumer product that actually works? Yeah, so I'm no longer at Neurable, but they they did have a Kickstarter campaign where you can order um, these uh, headphones. Okay. Um, and I think I'll be able to try them soon, but it is limited to like the stationary case where they're assuming you're sitting. So the contact is good on the electrodes. Right. But on the invasive case, like what Neuralink is doing, um, where they're cutting a piece of your scalp open and like inserting this sensor thing. Um, I think that case is definitely a lot more um, research oriented where they're doing clinical trials. They're focusing on people with like neurodegenerative diseases and that will be the case so that that's very far off from like your average consumer. Um, so yeah. I, I do I do think the timeline for both is like at least five to 10 years out. Yeah. Um, so I guess what they're doing, they are identifying actual, like, well, maybe not neurons, like re regions of the brain, I guess, that they want to go into. Like they, the, the, the electrodes aren't going on the cellular level in terms of specificity, I wouldn't have thought. Like it must be a group of neurons rather than... Yeah, I think that's a group. Um, but it is a lot higher fidelity because yeah. with EEG you can't like identify groups no so you'll do you've just literally got this random jumble of electric electrical activity that you're just having to do insane amounts of work on to try and pull some kind of coherence. Signal. yeah yeah exactly wow okay interesting problem to work on though I bet yeah, it is very fun, um, but sometimes it can be very frustrating. But it is. I mean, that's like all scientific problems, right? If you're working at the cutting edge, right, you yeah. never know what's going to happen. It just also could just not work. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, well, look, uh, we've, uh, we've, we've run for, we're coming up on an hour. So you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much for joining me, Alex. It's been super interesting. Um, where can people check you out? Yeah, people can check me out on X or Twitter at the Alex Kerr one word. Um, yeah, I, my DMs are open, so feel free to reach out to me. And I'm always happy to chat about um, AI startups, future of work, anything there. Awesome. All right. Well, look, um, it's been super fun. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for reaching out, Tom. It's been talking. Um,